He was very proud that he was designing something that he thought was lasting. It was appealing to something very basic about human needs as opposed to appealing to a fashionable thing. It's not so much that the particular solutions of 1950 or, or 1929 uh, are the ones that we want to go with, but the problems that they address are still there, and uh, they challenge us to think creatively about doing things now. Welcome to Titans of Trade. I'm your host, Constance Dunn, and today we welcome a very special guest, Dr. Raymond Neutra. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah. You know, your brother Dion was very generous and very good to Diggs. We did multiple video segments and articles about his work, uh, your father's work. And one thing about Dion, he was very passionate about his father's legacy, not just protecting existing works, but also uh, kind of having the themes and, and ideas of your of your father's also make make sure that they are, you know, kept alive. And now you have taken up the mantle. And I think it's wonderful that both of you, I think it's a testament to your father that both of you are so passionate about this. And could you tell us a little about what kind of instilled that in you and what made you want to say, you know, this is important and I need to do this? Well, you know, um, I'm 12 years younger than my late brother. So effectively, uh, I was an only child. And uh, so I grew up around adults. I was kind of precocious. And when my father wrote his book, Survival Through Design, and finally got it published in 1954, I was a high school student, and I actually read the book and became interested in medicine and in neuroscience. And so uh, my brother was already an architect, and I decided to take that career. It uh, it developed that by the time I was graduated from medical school, uh, that it was pretty clear I was not a, a laboratory kind of person. And um, I had an opportunity to uh, work with some uh, anthropologists on the Navajo Reservation studying uh, patients with epilepsy and, and with what's called hysteria, a, a kind of seizure which is thought to be a psychological, not uh, physiological. And then I discovered that I could uh, serve my military uh, duty working with the United States Public Health Service. And I then discovered epidemiology and ultimately environmental epidemiology and had a career teaching epidemiology in universities. And then for nearly 30 years in the California Department of Public Health, heading up a research division looking into occupational and environmental uh, epidemiology and toxicology. So that would mean that we did studies around communities that had chemical spills. Uh, we did a big study on policy and uh, uh, factors of possible health effects from power lines in magnetic fields, things like that. And um, so I discovered that there was a, a, a real uh, homology between the way my father thought about design and how public health people think about it. We're mm. focused on uh, being alert to hazards in the status quo, mm -hmm. uh, being alert to ways to improve that and, and focus on the effects on human beings, 
and also gathering information about what works and what doesn't work. And all of that was something that uh, could be found in that book, Survival Through Design, that my father wrote. So um, towards the end of his life, Dion and I um, agreed on the mission of this institute that my father actually started way back in 1962 to be partly about preserving the physical and intellectual legacy uh, of uh, my father, my brother, uh, and actually my mother, Diona, who was uh, very important in my father's career, and uh, but also using that legacy to be helpful to people today that are interested in in doing research on what works in design and uh, also those who are focused on that aspect of design that benefits people and the planet. So uh, projects like schools and housing for the aged and apartments and uh, parks and city design and so forth. So um, Dion had left us three apartment containing buildings in the Silver Lake District of LA and a, uh, and a bequest, which makes us possible now to do things that weren't possible before. So we have a very active board and a panel of advisors and uh, are finding partners who see our legacy as something that can be helpful to them. So it's been a lot of fun for an old guy to have a new job. Right. And you sent over some materials and I thought it was very interesting to, to look at the multi-household communities. And especially this is like a hundred years later, he was starting this in the 1920s. Um, and so these, you know, multi-household communities seem particularly relevant today. And I was curious about your thoughts on this and, and perhaps if you could relay some of the, the premises of your father related to designing these and his emphasis and interest in, in the, the multi-household community. So uh, the first one he did was 1927 with the Jardinette apartments uh, with balconies and so forth, access to the outdoors. And then the next one was the 1932 VDL studio and residences which, where Dion and I grew up. And uh, as we grew up, there were a number of times when there were three different households living on a 60 by 70 foot lot and sharing that space with my father's small office. So uh, this was all made possible by multiple exits from the space so that people could come and go without getting in each other's way and access to balconies and, and patios and gardens and so forth. Uh, and uh, then when my father uh, and Robert Alexander formed a partnership uh, in 1949, they built a, an office a few blocks away, but that had apartments in it as well. And they were designed so they could either be commercial spaces or residential spaces. And over their 70-year lifetime, uh, that has actually happened. And so... This is relevant to the situation now where we have all these vacant office spaces and homeless people, right? Um, <clears throat> so uh, it, it's not so much that the particular solutions of 1950 or, or 1929 
uh, are the ones that we want to go with, but the problems that they address are still there. And uh, they challenge us to think creatively about doing things now. We actually have a nice webinar uh, on our website where um, um, uh, the architect Larry Scarpa talks about some of the innovative things he's doing around this typology and talking also about the uh, legacy in uh, Dion and, and Richard's uh, practice of, of this particular type of of design. So um, we hope uh, on our website now to uh, have a page where people can see uh, some of the other apartment containing buildings that the practice did, but also our three, and they'll be able to see what passerbys will be able to see. We, we've, for each of these three structures, we're going to have short videos that people can see the interiors of them uh, with a QR code outside uh, the building. Mm. And uh, so, for example, in the first one that we've now completed, which was the uh, one of the apartments at the back of the Neutra Alexander office, uh, there's a short video about the tactics that were used to bring in natural light and protect from natural light with uh, roll down awnings and so forth. Uh, and what we know about the physiological effects of natural light and how it affects performance. And then there'll be another brief uh, uh, interior view about how this was designed so it could either be commercial or residential. And then a virtual reality tour that people can take just walking around the vacant apartment. Now it's occupied by um, a uh, interior decorator. So it's being used uh, as a commercial space now. The previous occupant used it as a residence. So um, each of those three buildings will have that. And then our website will be set up so that people can see it. Um, and that we will have links to other apartment museums around the world and links to some of the people that are doing innovative work today in this typology. So hmm. um, we, we keep trying to use our legacy to stimulate people's thinking about today's challenges. Absolutely. Tell us about living in VDL House and tell us what are some of your favorite memories or little corners of it, things that just really stay in your mind that you really cherish? So um, I remember as just a really little kid that um, one of my morning jobs was to take a glass of hot milk across the patio and over into the office where my dad had been working since four o'clock in the morning uh, on, on drawings or, or writing and uh, carefully balancing that, that glass of milk uh, going up the stairs and opening the door and opening another door and going into the office. And there my dad would be sitting on a tall a metal stool with his T-square and triangle uh, drawing on the thing. And then uh, I was allowed to slurp the skin that formed on the top of that hot milk this was before homogenization, and uh, remembering that as a as a memory. Um, I also remember 
some of the other people that that lived uh, uh, in the compound at the same time as we did. The um, um, Frank Wilkinson and his wife Jean and their uh, little baby lived on the upper floor when I was really small. He was the person who uh, helped get public housing started uh, in Los Angeles, and uh, then a fell afoul of the McCarthyites in the in the 1950s, and then became a real activist on freedom freedom of speech, um, and and was was a friend of the family throughout his lifetime. Uh, I also remember um, sort of eavesdropping uh, at night on the client conferences that took place in the living room on the second floor of EDL. So there were lots of people who came and went, and then, of course, wandering through the drafting room, there was a international group of architects that would come and work with my father, some of them briefly, some of them for long periods of time. And uh, interesting characters like Sergei Koshin, who was a, a Russian uh, architect who had uh, worked with Le Corbusier in, in Russia and then in the Second World War was captured by the Nazis and managed to survive that and came to the United States and then worked with my dad for, for nearly 20 years. And he was assigned the unenviable task of trying to teach me how to draft. And uh, I wasn't very gifted at that, but he was very patient and nice guy. <laughs> right. And it strikes me that your father, I would imagine, was a very serious and a very productive man. So it's testament to the, the, the skill of the VDL design that a very busy, you know, intense person that needed to be very focused could do so in a structure where there was a lot of things going on, a lot of people, a lot of personalities. I'm just curious yeah. about that. What do you think are some of the elements that lent, lent the VD, VDL house to being so successful in this regard? Right from the beginning, it was designed with this idea that um, a number of households could be there. And so there was a lot of attention to the traffic and how people could exit the building with, uh, without having to go through the other spaces. Um, so his bedroom was on the top floor, the far, far end. And uh, ultimately, there was a little elevator that was put in the closet and, and the uh, sort of the main office of the office manager was on the floor below. And people would do drawings and then put it in the elevator and send it up in the elevator for him to fish out and look out, uh, look at early in the morning when his brain was fresh. Um, another feature was that uh, there was a wing of the house that was built when I was born in 1939 that was separated by two patios. And uh, my mother, who was a musician uh, and uh, very much involved with my father's career in the way, for example, that Elaine Saarinen was involved with with uh, her husband's career, or Ray Cappy's wife was involved with his, um, that um, Sunday morning was a time when she was, was her own time. She was a, a musician, and uh, she would be 
in the piano room on the in in this wing that was separated by a a patio and she would uh, play uh, the piano and sing Schubert and Schumann and Brahms and and she also played the cello and sang at the same time uh, uh, people can read about her on our website and we just added a recently remastered uh, digital copy of a record that she had made sometime in the early 60s, I think it was, of her music. So you can hear that. But anyway, I would sit under the piano uh, reading the comic book while she was playing on the piano above me. And that's one of my vivid memories, too. It sounded like you had a really extraordinary childhood. Well, you know, I look back and I was really surrounded by both the people immediately in my in my family, but they're friends of, of people who are tremendously engaged and creative people. So I was lucky in that way. And a lot of helpful, uh, well-intentioned people too. A lot of modeling of, of a productive, happy living uh, uh, was around me, both Absolutely. in relatives and friends. And you mentioned something that, you know, Diona was very involved in, you know, your father's work. And, you know, what were some of the ways that she was? Uh, right from the beginning, uh, she kind of signed up. Uh, I think that she was attracted by his sense of mission. And uh, in early letters that she ultimately published a whole book of letters that she found in a box after my dad died with a, a note on to read when I get old. And uh, she had completely forgotten these letters, but they wrote each other long letters because uh, after they met in Switzerland, I think it was 1919, my father went back to Austria. So there were letters going back and forth. And then he got a job in Berlin and uh, so letters were going back and forth. And uh, she, you know, expresses uh, to uh, my father's older sister that th this is how she saw this relationship, that she was going to be helpful to him and that uh, children were fine, but, but you know, they were going to grow up and have their own lives, and then they would be together again as they had before they had children. And so she learned to type and um, um, and also her family, in a way, became a much closer to my father than his own family, because his, like me, he was much younger than his next siblings. So they were almost a generation before him. And they were not particularly interested in modern architecture. It was sort of a peculiarity of their kid brother, right? But my uh, grandmother uh, was also very charmed by my father. And, and uh, it was she who got the idea of having Neutra and Schindler do the League of Nations competition and, and urging him to do that. And um, always looking out for contacts and friends where, where she could. This is my grandmother. And so my mother was that way too, very um, a possibility thinker. There was an episode when I was about 
five, I think, that um, 1944, there was no more architecture being done. And my father was offered two things. One was that he would go to Bennington College to teach. And the other was that he could be the design advisor to a project for designing schools and hospitals in the island of Puerto Rico. And um, he told my mother, this, this, this is a crazy idea. What, why don't you think about it? And so she sat down and, and wrote the pros and cons of, of these two things and then realized, you know, we really can do them both because the, uh, in the winter uh, semester, not so much is going on at, at Bennington. And you could just sign on for the fall and the spring. And then in the wintertime, uh, you could be in Puerto Rico and, and, and work there. Characteristically, she decided that it was much more important that she should be with my father than with her five-year-old son. So I was shipped off to a boarding school for that uh, a winter semester, uh, a, a kind of a lonely memory for me at, at that time. But this was something that was a really precious time uh, for them while my dad was feverishly working on these designs and pulling together a team of, of architects to do them. My mother had a chance to play on her cello in, in semi-tropical uh, Puerto Rico. Right. Um, and um, there was an episode sort of just before that was solidified where my father had pneumonia and she had to go around to all the government agencies to get the documents to allow them to travel to Puerto Rico during the wartime. So um, she was very resourceful that way. Yeah. Um, I tell the story too when I was more like a teenager that kind of illustrates the two sides of my dad and how my mother played into that. Uh, it w she realized there was a block of time. It must have been about April of been around 1950 or sometime around there, that there was nothing scheduled. And she suggested that we all take a, a drive up the coast uh, to Mendocino County. And uh, um, this happened to be the time of rhododendrons coming out. And I remember driving down the Cruz Rhododendron uh, Preserve uh, uh, near Fort Ross something that I know about because later I took my kids to a camp there. So I rediscovered that place. We drove down this dirt road through all these uh, rhododendrons and uh, my father had had a heart attack. And in those days it was said that you had to not exercise too much if you had a heart attack. And so, uh, and that he shouldn't drive anymore. So that my mother drove and we had a Nash car where the back seat of the of the passenger front passenger seat went down and he would um, sit with his back against the back seat with his feet stretching out and I was sitting next to him and we were looking back out the back of the back window going through these clouds of white uh, rhododendrons and it was just silence as we observed all that and um, 
um, he I could see how how moved he was by this beauty. And then some hours later, we went to to some place up more near Mendocino, and uh, we noticed that there was a plot of land on the ocean with a sign there saying that they were going to do something. And uh, we were driving back from that when he suddenly told my mother to stop at a country store, and he went into the store, and we were in the car. And uh, then he came out and went into the phone booth and started telephoning. And then he came over with a mischievous smile on his face and leaned over through the driver's window and said, Yeah, Dione, where do you think we are going to spend the evening tonight? He said, Yeah, Richard, where? Uh, smiling back, knowing that there was something afoot. He said, we are going to Lake Tahoe. He said, yeah, Richard, this is 300 miles away. Why are we going to Lake Tahoe? Because that is where the Ford dealers are meeting. And yes, and why do we care about the Ford dealers? It's because Mr. Smith, who is the Ford dealer here, is the man who owns that property. And I'm going to suggest that I work with him to do a development there. So we hopped in the car, drove over the coastal mountains into the Central Valley, past Chico and up into uh, Lake Tahoe. And uh, my father made a beeline to the uh, part of the hotel where, where all the, you know, the Ford paraphernalia were. And then he went and called up Mr. Smith and invited him to have breakfast with us. And he made his and took out the little laminated card that he always had in his in his wallet with the Time magazine cover on it and showed a bunch of pictures to Mr. Smith and uh, nothing came of it. But that was one of many pitches that, that he made and that my mother was up for this deviation from her vacation plan for the adventure with this entrepreneurial... Uh, interesting guy that was never boring. And 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 so it, they were partners and you were also along for the ride. It seems like sometimes with parenting, parents kind of sequester children in many ways from their lives. Their parent, kids don't know much about their parents' work or, you know, there's not a lot of open discussion between parents in front of the children, but it seems like you were just part of part of the journey there. What was that like for you? I mean, you were a child or you were a young person. And did you ever think about that in those terms? Like, okay, my parents are different than the way some of my friends' parents are. There's a different relationship here. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. I really uh, had very few children friends uh, until I got into high school. Uh, uh, and so... I can't remember that I consciously realized that, but uh, basically I was just taken along and, and uh, I, I was taken along on photo shoots to, with Julius Schulman and um, I was taken along to uh, visit uh, buildings under construction and um, um, I was included in dinner parties where there were intellectual discussions. And so um, 
that was lots of motivated, um, hard charging people uh, as as role models right. uh, for me. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to switch and talk about sustainable uh, design in the sense of in the Neutra sense. And it, 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 and the way it can quote support us and maintain us into a future with its own new challenges. I find that fascinating. Was the idea that there would be architecture that would basically roll with the changes of of its inhabitants' life? Is that what is meant by sustainability in that way? Yeah, I think that um, there was a whole generation of of architects after the arts and crafts movement, and Frank Lloyd Wright uh, was a leader in, at that in the early phases of his uh, career, where it became clear that if if you were committed to providing a wide swath of the population with a, a healthy and, and usable environment, it simply was not possible to do it unless you came to terms with industrialization and prefabrication and 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 what have you. That architects previously had been oriented to building cathedrals and big government buildings and 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 mansions, right? Uh, and now they were turning to designing things like schools and hospitals and, and what have you. And uh, of course, technology would change and social organizations would change. Um, and the places where you extended like deserts and jungles and so forth, that, that climates would change. I don't think that, and, and so my father was quite sensitive to orientation and where the sun was coming from and capturing the breezes. This was before um, um, air conditioning and so forth. Um, and it was an early adopter of using radiant heat. And in the Kaufman Desert ha house, he actually had chilled water going out into the pool deck so that it wouldn't be too hot. You could sit on it. Um, and so there was a lot of attention to that with with uh, awnings built into the design of the structure rather than as an afterthought and, and uh, a vertical uh, metal louvers to follow the sun and, and, and control things. Um, I don't think that uh, he anticipated the whole issue of uh, – of carbon footprint in, in 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 those aspects, but the general commitment to be thinking about consequences make it very easy to to move into that. And uh, so, with the changing climate, we're going to have issues of extending the usable life of some of the buildings. The uh, we're partnering. With the environmental psychologists at Perkins Eastman, uh, who, who are uh, raising funds to do a post-occupancy evaluation of the UCLA Laboratory School that was designed in 1958, and it uh, has large sliding glass doors and cross ventilation and so forth. Well, as LA becomes as hot as Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, 
uh, there's going to have to be some adaptation of the design of that to to extend its life uh, because um, um, climate has changed. And so they're going to give some thought to that as well. And uh, as, as we move to different latitudes, there's going to be all kinds of challenges. As we move to the moon, there will be challenges. And we right. won't have sliding glass doors going out there, but we'll, we'll have to capture the essence of what human beings are adapted to for these other kinds of environments. You know, the idea of, of biorealism, as, as Richard Neutra said, and connecting science to design, that was a real emphasis of his from the beginning. And again, I assume a very serious man, a lot of, you know, rigor to his thoughts. This was a very serious pursuit. And I was just curious about the idea of science and design and having some kind of, I don't know, quantifiable way to measure the impact of the success of one's design and ways that that, that could be done. Now that's kind of free form, but. Yeah, I, I think that um, he recognized that there was some resistance to the idea of applying scientific knowledge to something as artistic as design. And there would be the fear that it would just become uh, designing by rote or, or something like that. Um, and I suppose that um, that could happen, although for him it was very stimulating. It, uh, it gave him ideas and, and uh, excited him to pay attention to some things that maybe he hadn't paid attention to. And so we're in the process of republishing this book, Survival Through Design. Are you? And uh, uh, going back and chasing down some of the references that he had. He was quite widely read in the uh, neuroscience of the 30s and 40s and the early 50s. And um, the a lot has happened since he... He uh, wrote that book, and he probably would think of things somewhat differently if he had the advantage of the many things that are going on uh, now, uh, that we have the tools uh, with uh, functional magnetic resonance imagery and so forth to study things that just were not possible uh, then. Um, And so... uh, on the one hand, we can have standard practices that reflect certain knowledge and respect them that will improve the quality of the inevitably large volume of mediocre work, right? Uh, but can also stimulate the, uh, the groundbreaking and, and um, uh, setting the standard kind of architecture of creative architects right, right. and it's not just architecture we're talking about equipment design we're talking about city planning about neighborhood planning furniture lighting all kinds of things that we're surrounding ourselves with a man designed uh, environment and you know thinking just about 
I'm curious about thinking about, we had the opportunity to, to visit Dion in at the reunion house and spent some time there. And, uh, also, just I've written about the Level Health House um, as well as Kaufman House, and I'm curious, what do you think your father would think? These are still very user friendly, incredibly valuable properties. Many years later, decades later, like I remember just being in the reunion house with Dion and the, the sliding glass, and I believe it was original, and just opening that up and being in that lovely court courtyard and. Again, just what do you what do you think your father would think of this to see Kaufman House and and um, the Level Health House going for millions of dollars and just looking as lovely as they are and 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 how they've endured? Do you think he'd be surprised? No, he was very proud that he was designing something that he thought was lasting and that that okay. because it was appealing to something very basic about human needs. Uh, as opposed to appealing to a fashionable thing. So, you know, the the latest kind of clothing is not anticipated to be, it's designed so that it wouldn't be long-lasting. Otherwise, you'd never buy a new dress, right? It's supposed to be something new and surprising, and no one expects it to last very long. Uh, and he felt that architecture and I was thinking recently about uh, Central Park, 150 years old uh, or more now, that continues to be used, not in exactly the same way it was in the mid-1800s, but uh, it's, it, it is flexible enough to continue to provide pretty much the same kind of satisfactions. And so he was looking to do that. Uh, the reunion house uh, is, of course, one of the properties that Dion has left to us. It has a, a small apartment that was anticipated in the original design, but that Dion finally built uh, above the garage. And um, we are in the process of offering to the University of Southern California a residency for final year master's students that are interested in what my dad called architecture of social concern. Yes. And they'll be able to, to stay there for a year uh, rent-free in exchange for uh, uh, giving a webinar on our website about the project that they worked on and giving one public tour a year. And, and they will be in one wing of the house. And then the master bedroom will be reserved for visiting scholars. And we'll have uh, four of those a year. And so that student will get to meet some interesting people at the other end of the house. And so uh, we look to, uh, once again, use our legacy to promote those today who are doing the kinds of things that reflect the values that my brother and, and father and mother um, were committed to. And, and, You've done, you're helming the Institute and you guys are moving and grooving. I was reading through what you've accomplished in the last year alone and you guys are just, a lot's happening. And um, I think it's extraordinary. What has it been like helming this and uh, being part of the Institute for you? I mean, you're a doctor, you have a, many decades in working in medicine and being an epidemiologist. And uh, this is a little bit of a, 
a change or perhaps it isn't, but what, what have you enjoyed so far? And congratulations by, by the way, cause you, you guys are doing such a great job and, and doing so much. Well, it has really been heartwarming. There are a lot of people that love this legacy that have just stepped forward and, uh, um, brought their ideas and a lot of work to make this all happen. Um, We've been, uh, our our secretary, uh, Sion Winship, is the president of the Southern California chapter of the uh, Society of Architectural and Historians. And her partner, John Burley, has volunteered as a, he's an architect and, and as our client representative for a number of the projects to both evaluate what we have to do to bring these properties up to snuff and and start doing the work on them. We had to redo the electrical system at Reunion House because it turned out that um, some of the old technology was was no longer acceptable to the insurance companies and things like that. So um, um, all kinds of interesting ideas have, have come up. Uh, we're partnering with uh, Fort LA for Residential Treasures of LA, and we uh, they've made a trail of Neutra Apartments and Schindler Apartments in the Silver Lake District. So people who come on and see our three buildings also can see VDL and the Coblick Duplex, and then some of Schindler's wonderful apartments there. So all kinds of people are stepping forward, and it's just a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, I'm good. That's a great attitude. You're like, it's a lot of fun. That's wonderful. Um, I know that uh, Dion was particularly concerned about making sure that the existing Neutra uh, structures and designs were were intact or were not, you know, I'll say the D word, like demolished or destroyed in any way. Um, is your emphasis more on the architecture of social concern aspect? Um, well, we're trying to... Uh, we realize that protesting destruction is important, but we're, uh, you know, I'm a preventive medicine guy. So I'm trying to think, how do we make that less likely? And one of the exciting things is two of the owners uh, have stepped forward. This is uh, Professor Chris Hacker and his musician partner, Will Thomas, who own a Neutra house. And they are forming a network of Neutra owners and stewards who can share experience of, of successful restorations. And, and uh, when they come up with them, we will feature little webinars uh, on our public web page to inspire people that, yes, this can be done. Um, the uh, There's one of them there now about uh, the Painted Desert community of Neutra and Alexander, where the uh, previous uh, uh, ranger who was in charge uh, uh, did a lot of work in, in salvaging that uh, property, which is now a National Historic uh, um, Monument. And um, so we'll have more of those. Uh, another example of, of enthusiastic people volunteering to, to step forward. There are sad stories. I'm involved with one here in Monterey County where a, a wealthy um, um, uh, tech 
uh, person uh, uh, has bought the bought a beautiful house on Pebble Beach that she wants to tear down and has allowed to fall into a decrepitude and it's now being decided at the county supervisor's level about whether they're going to let this happen. Um, it, it's sort of a sad story. Uh, she, she requested the the ability to tear the thing down and was told that she had to do in, um, an evaluation of whether it was historic. And she hired a specialist to look at it. And he said, yeah, lady, it is historic. And then she fired him. And finally, the uh, state historic uh, office declared it as historic. And a couple of years after that, she claimed that some vagrants had come into the house with a chainsaw and systematically spent several hours cutting through the supports of this house. And she said she has absolutely nothing to do with that. Wow. Um, and so she was required to put cribbing under it. And then the building has been left open, glass is broken. The house was inhabited when she bought it from owners of many years. And so now it's a wreck. And the county is saying, well, it's a wreck. So uh, it should be torn down. And, and my statement to them is that they are creating a bad precedent because if they say that if something like this happens in your historic building, we won't investigate to find out what happened. Right. And once it's, what's, once it's uh, torn down, you know, once it's deteriorated, then we'll let you tear it down and put your whatever you want in its, in its place. And so there are lots of historic buildings that this could be done to. Yeah. We'll see what happens. We, uh, The Association of Monterey Area Preservationists have been fighting this, and some of the neighbors have been fighting it. But um, you do your own, you do the own college try to try to save these things, but prevention is maybe uh, an important thing for us to do too. So, Right. And I, I love that approach, the idea of creating this network of Neutra, you know, property owners. And, and it's, it is, it's a, it's a great preventative medicine guy kind of approach, what you're saying. It seems very effective ultimately. So that's, that's wonderful to hear. And we, of course, thank you so much for, for being part of this and sharing all these personal recollections and just what's going on with the Institute. What is the website? Where can people uh, see all these wonderful videos and get all this great material? So uh, it's a easy, neutra.org, N-E-U-T-R-A dot org. Right. And um, we, we think our audience is partly people who love to see good, beautiful pictures. And we've emphasized the non-residential projects because yeah. U.S. modernism has most of the residential projects. So we have schools and apartments and civic buildings and, and so forth, some of which are not so well known. And we're, many of them were documented extensively by uh, Julius Schulman, but the publications only have one or two of those pictures. So right. we are showing pictures that most people have never seen. So it, that will be interesting. And then the other audience are um, high school students and college students that need to write a, a uh, you know, a term paper and the occasional doctoral student that really wants to dig into it. And so there's quite a bit of depth 
there in in the website for people who want to dig deeper uh, uh, with information both and, and interviews and, and videos uh, of my father and mother and and uh, and Dion. And uh, one of the things that we're excited about was that uh, the historian Barbara Lamprecht reminded us of a 1968 documentary in the German language about my dad's ideas. And uh, with the help of uh, Russell Brown of Fort L.A., we've put English subtitles on it. Uh, the uh, uh, wife of the um, uh, president of the Neutra Gesellschaft in Germany uh, went through that whole uh, uh, film and wrote down the German and then translated to English so that we could make these subtitles. And now we're a colleague in, in China is going to make Chinese subtitles. So it'll be available to a billion people in, in China. So there are things like that on the website that I think people will find interesting. Absolutely. And then there's a related website that a, a professor of history at Cal Poly did about the social life at the VDL. And that website is uh, uh, Neutra History. Uh, mm. Dot org, and um, it has things in there. For example, that my mother was very enterprising. When it, they would invite interesting people because they were immigrants to, to this interesting house, and all kinds of people came there. And she wrote uh, who she invited on what date, what she served them, and what she sang to them between 1938 and 1963. And I, we summarize some of that material at that website and talk about some of the different people. Of, I mentioned all these three different households at different times. So that's another website that people who are interested in might like to look at. Extraordinary. And there's a link to it on, uh, from our website. All right. Well, onward and upward. Thank you so much, Dr. Neutra. Thank you so much for your interest. <laughs>